know, I, I love music and oftentimes feel myself being carried away by music. And it happened very recently to me uh, while I was listening, had my, my iPhone on shuffle, and came across an old Bruce Hornsby tune uh, that was made popular by Don Henley in the late 1980s called The End of the Innocents. The, the, the lyrics of the, of the song basically place Henley with a, uh, with a girl uh, talking about the tragedies of his life. Uh, his divorce of his parents, and also political strife around him. Listen to these lyrics real quickly. He says, remember when the days were long and rolled beneath a deep blue sky? Didn't have a care in the world with mommy and daddy standing by. But happily ever after fails. And we've been poisoned by these fairy tales. The lawyer dwell on small details and say, daddy had to fly. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies. But now those skies are threatening. They're beating plowshares into swords for a tired old man that we elected king. Armchair warriors often fail, and we've been poisoned by these fairy tales. The lawyers clean up all details and tell us that daddy had to lie. But I know a place where we can go and wash away this sin. We'll sit and watch the clouds roll by and the tall grass wave in the wind. Just lay your head back on the ground and let your hair spill all around. Offer up your best defense, but this is the end. This is the end of the innocence. I wonder if you've ever felt that way and wondered, what was that age when you suddenly realized that the world can be overwhelmingly sad? Often. I mean, just in the last two weeks, we've had a, a violent murder that happened out at Sardis. We've got racial tensions you know, flaring over a photograph at the Emmett Till Memorial. Just in the last 24 hours, we've got the people of El Paso and Dayton, Ohio with mass shootings in front of us. It's almost as if, thanks to the internet culture, we know every bad thing that happens all the time anywhere. And after a while, it starts to get under your skin. And even it seems like when these huge tragedies aren't happening, there's almost this, this sense that adulthood is marked by that kind of low-grade sense of wrongness. It just leads you to want to cry more often than you probably admit to your friends. Statistics show that we're one of the most depressed societies on the planet. Copious amounts of antidepressants and money on psychotherapy. Well, we've been looking this summer at how the Bible is a story. And our hope is to sort of see it as such and therefore be moved to engage with it more often than we usually do. And so, but it's worth asking the question as we dive into the content of the Bible story. Is this going to be a sad story? Or is it going to be a happy one? Is the life that I hope to see reflected by the Bible going to have a happy ending or a sad one? And you're, not, you're just not paying attention if you don't realize that the question of pain and of suffering and of evil, like going away, are the top of this generation's list of reasons to walk away from the Bible and not care a thing about Christianity. Someone comes in contact with, with crushing evil, and they just couldn't make sense of it. Maybe they lost a loved one. Uh, someone sort of found themselves in a decaying marriage. Someone ran out of patience, waiting on God to work in their rebellious child. But eventually, one day, they just give up. And so if the Bible cannot give us a framework of how to understand the radical evil in the world around us and in our own hearts, then we're just not going to follow it. But my premise this morning is that indeed the Bible does take evil quite seriously. But it does so in a way that will actually be a little surprising for this modern world. Because in Genesis chapter 3, we are introduced to a character 
who helps us frame this, this irrepressible sadness that's all around us and so feel, often feel inside of us. He appears to us in Genesis 3 as a serpent, a, a snake, this uh, shadowy, dark figure who obviously has a lot of knowledge about God, uh, but he's clearly sort of dead set on unraveling God's purposes to his own end. And of course, the mysterious figure is one who tempts. He, he influences these original beings to use the agency that God gave them to their own ends rather than God's. So that's it, in a nutshell. <laughs> the Bible's teaching is that behind every God-mocking event in human history, you know, penetrated by humans with little or no regard to human dignity and justice, are forces that have been battling God's plans from the beginning, luring his people into deeper and deeper forms of rebellion. You know, a lot of people don't realize that C.S. Lewis also did another uh, uh, work of fiction that was a science fiction uh, trilogy, one of which is called Out of the Silent Planet, where the main hero in the book is named Ransom. He gets a chance to leave the Earth and go to Mars and see the Earth from Mars's perspective. And while he's there, he finds that Earth has been, been tormented by what Lewis calls a bent one, who is a fallen angel. And so it's almost as if our study is doing the same journey that Ransom has, to get outside to look and see if we can't make sense of the world. We're looking at it from far away to understand exactly what's happening from us. And so the Bible's explanation for the profound tragedy that we see around us is that the world is not as it ought to be. It is bent. And it explains that behind the evil in the world is a malevolent personality. Jesus is later going to refer to him as the father of lies because his primary mode of existence is to lie. And so borrowing from Lewis's terms into doing, he bends the world. So the world is not as it should be. So you just can't have a mature, realistic view of the world from God's perspective until you understand how the devil tempts God's creatures into rebellion. So our story this morning is almost as if it's the devil's master class on showing how to drag these creatures into their own self-destruction. Perhaps if we can dive into to the nature of these attacks, it'll help, help us understand the evil in the world around us and the evil in our own hearts. And you can sum it up in one sentence. Satan gets these original creatures to doubt whether or not God is actually being good to them. That's it. But he unpacks it with three sort of individual lies that you have there as our points this morning. He gives an exaggeration of God's law, first of all. He distorts God's character, second. And then he deceives them about sin's consequences. So let's look at number one. The first thing he does is to exaggerate God's law. You, you barely get one verse into Genesis 3 when we see exactly where this assault is headed. Notice what Satan says. Did God really say that you may not eat of any tree in the garden? Oh, that's an interesting way to phrase that. <laughs> Is that what God said? Actually, no. God not only forbids them, God forbids them to only eat of one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What is the devil doing right here? It's, you know, it's almost as if he's saying to himself, hey, you know, look, Eve, I don't mean to pry, but you know, me and the other uh, uh, animals have been talking about this God who comes and meets with you during the cool of the day. And uh, <laughs> we hear uh, that he's denied you the right to eat from any of the fruit of the tree in this garden. I mean, Seems like you got you on a mighty short lease there, Eve. Just about, about this way I see it. And so you see this subtly what he's attempting, because he's trying to plant in Eve's mind this little slight kernel of a doubt 
about the reasonableness of God's request for obedience. How? By exaggerating the law. You see? He adds to it. Because if evil begin to doubt and conclude that his rules are kind of oppressive, then he knows that it's not long before she will resent him for it. And of course, straight up disobedience is just a short step away. It's a diabolical plan. (laughs) Because in the garden, God is saying, look, the universe is mine. And because it's mine, it only works in accordance with my rules and design, which is for your fulfillment and for your deep flourishing. But under the terms of this first covenant, that flourishing is directly tied to your obedience, to my law. And in order to, in other words, for you to really be truly human, you've got to follow my laws. You see, in the Bible's logic, the question of God's goodness should never be questioned. Because it's not just that God knows sort of how we work. It's that he ordained the way in which we should work. You can imagine someone approaching you with a, with a I don't know, a bottle of poison and just encourage you to take a swig. And of course, you think to yourself, you know, I seem to remember somewhere back in seventh grade where someone told me, don't do that. <laughs> to which the person looks and goes, huh, my goodness. I mean, it's a little narrow minded of you if you ask me. I mean, do you do everything your seventh grade teacher told you to do? To which you would respond, well, there's nothing narrow-minded about it. Nothing could be kinder than to be explicit about how I function the best. What's the point? Well, the point is that when Adam and Eve asked themselves the question, I don't know, should we disobey? They already have. Because as soon as we entertain the idea, we've already called God's goodness into question. And what's oftentimes missed is that this is the essence of sin to doubt whether God has the best intentions in his people's hearts. Moses is trying to tell these Israelites, the minute that you begin to doubt that, you're on your way to destruction. It's inevitable. I think there's actually some textual evidence that shows that Eve has already taken the bait. Look at her response in verse 2. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Huh, that's interesting. (laughs) because when you go back to chapter 2, where God was actually laying down the rules that we were supposed to follow about these trees, he didn't say anything about not touching it. Where'd that come from? (laughs) Has Eve already taken the bait? She's saying, you don't come to think of it, we really can't eat anything, but but we're not even supposed to touch the one in the middle. does seem a little oppressive now, doesn't it? Isn't it interesting that the very first temptation in the Bible is pushing these creatures into laws that God never gave. That's the first one. You know, we, you know we're church-going people. You went to church this morning, by definition. And we get all been out of shape, out of people that are out there in the world, you know, because they avoid God's law. <laughs> but the funny thing is, it didn't start there. I mean, there is a whole other sermon to be preached on the fact that Pharisaism is resentment against God by adding rules to his law, while lawlessness is resentment against God by ignoring his law. But you see, the sickness is exactly the same. Whether you are pursuing your your rebellion against God through your irreligion, running away from his purposes in your life, or whether you're pursuing running away from God's law through your religion, it's all the same thing. Same sickness. So when we move against God's design for us, we move against ourselves. 
You were created to be dominated by God. So much so that anything that you do outside of that domination is just leading to your dysfunction. That's how we were created. This is one of the reasons why that 25 years in campus ministry led me to entertain on a regular basis this question about dating couples. You know, Les, when it comes to my physical relationship, um, how far is too far? Teachers will tell you there's no such thing as a dumb question. That's a dumb question. You want to know why? Because think of the premise of it. It's like, Les, if you could just help me get as close as I possibly can to sin and rebellion without actually being responsible for it, that'd be great, right? You see the point there? (laughs) I mean, and again, before you get too critical about all the college students today, um, how much of our own spiritual life is spent searching for loopholes? (laughs) To kind of get out of that way of knowing what we've done. I don't know. Some of us even, maybe some of us actually come to church for the very same reason. So exaggeration of God's law is the first direct lie. Number two, Satan distorts God's character. Look at verse four. When he responds to Eve, he says, look, God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. What's he saying? He's going, Eve, God's trying to keep you out of the God club. He knows that once you jump in, you're going to be just like him. He's keeping things from you, Eve. You shouldn't trust him. It's kind of a loss of subtlety here at this point as he sort of casts God in this sadistic light. He tries to make them believe that God's holding. He's being withholding. But the point of Genesis 3 is that sin, (laughs) in any of its forms, is just a doubt of the character of God. Because when he comes in and says, sin is dangerous, he means, and it's going to kill you. It's always deadly. Satan seems to be preying upon Adam's gullibility throughout the episode. Because he's trying to get Adam and Eve to cast themselves as if they are um, like neutral observers, right? You know, this is a really interesting question here. Over here, we have obedience to God, and over here, we have the snake's way. Whichever shall we choose? That's the temptation. The problem is in the presumption that I'm in a position to stand outside of God's law and judge its merit from some kind of objective platform, Look, the the fall, this cosmic car wreck of the fall, shows that the universe is not even patterned that way. There really is this powerful realization that comes over when you suddenly realize that I'm not an independent arbiter of reality, but I'm a dependent creature made in his image. And until I grasp this and begin to kind of adjust my mind's apprehension of my true position in the universe... God's law is always going to seem like like an imposition of an invading will into my will sovereignty. It'll always feel that way, but they're not. They're God's way of protecting his people. A number of years ago, I heard a preacher use an illustration. It's a bit graphic, I'll warn you. But it was about how Eskimos, apparently, would hunt wolves. Bear with me for a second. Because these Eskimos would sort of freeze caked blood around a very sharp knife. And they would take the knife out into a field and stick it in the ground, blade up. And of course, as the wolf approaches, he approaches because he smells, he smells blood. And as he licks the frozen blood from the knife, the wolf becomes more and more ravenous and just can't control himself as he voraciously licks at this knife. And pretty soon the wolf can't tell the difference in his mouth between the blood on the knife and the blood flowing from his own lacerated tongue. 
And he goes to sleep and dies right there. It's a powerful illustration. Because it shows that of course sin is alluring. It wouldn't be a lie if it wasn't. But once you begin down its path, it becomes harder and harder to stop and say no to its desire. Finally, we're left consumed by it and wondering how things ever got so confusing. So lie number one is an exaggeration of God's law. Number two is a distortion of God's character. Number three, there's a deception about sin's consequences. Verse four, he just says it right out. You will not surely die. The consequences that God has made a promise about sin ain't going to happen. It's not true. And so this is sort of, it was so interesting to me because I do think that like, let me put it this way. I grew up in a religious context that many of you would refer to as sort of hellfire and brimstone kind of thing. I know what it feels like on the inside to feel like I'm being threatened with emotional appeals to, to hell's eternity. But, but, but isn't it so often that that feels so far removed from our experience that it barely makes a dent, does it? So for the sake of discussion, uh, forget the eternal consequences for rebellion and realize that sin actually has present this world consequences. Because the truth is, I'm not really sure we get away with anything. Do we really? We console ourselves by saying, well, I mean, yeah, 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 but I'm a Christian. God forgives me of those wrongs that I do. And you know, the truth is, there's no doubt, right? There is no sin so great that God doesn't have forgiveness to cover it. But that doesn't mean that you don't bear scars upon our souls and our conscience for long after that time. For, forgiven? Yeah, but for years living with consequences that can erode you from the inside. And God's trying to spare his people of that. It's a wonderful little book by Richard Beck called um, Reviving Old Scratch. Old Scratch was the sort of old-timey name for the devil, the way they used to refer to him back in the day. And of course, in that book, he's asking why it is that belief in the devil is kind of falling on hard times in our day. Perhaps we've gotten too enlightened or, you know, uh, perhaps those you know, who just don't want to believe it anymore. But he says, so often you'll find that the people that are suffering the most in life, they're the ones that'll tell you. They'll tell you that this is too bad for it not to have somebody behind it. It ain't just fate. Somebody feels like they're orchestrating this, like they're pushing it and moving it. And he says, I never understood it until I started making visits to a local prison and talking to the inmates there. That was when the doors came swinging open. Listen to him talk about what happened to him. This is fascinating. He says, when I began to listen to these men that day and since, and they described their day-to-day struggles, I began to trace the shape of the devil in prison. No, I didn't see horns and a pitchfork, but I began to discern the shape of that something the men were always talking about. There was a force pressing down upon the men, a brutal, violent, and dehumanizing force. And in the Bible, it's called the pattern of this world, a world ruled by the prince of the power of the air. And that night, I began to discern what was happening in the souls of these men. They felt that something was pressing down upon them, something trying to force them into, to to squeeze them into the brutal, violent, and dehumanizing shape that conformed to the world in which they were living. That force was everywhere, pressing down, down, down upon them, tempting them, taunting them, demoralizing them, yelling at them, whispering to them, squeezing the life out of them, 
a force working tirelessly to mold them into its dark image. And if not to mold them, then to break them and walk them hand in hand through their despair into suicide. Look, in other words, (laughs) it really is like the height of immaturity to flirt with sin or to minimize it because God will forgive me. Because all sin leaves scars, yes, but some of those things are there for years and years to come. And we just don't often realize that the fact that temptation, when it comes, is wanting to kill me. (laughs) Behind that temptation, somebody wants my destruction. The parasite that is sin has as its final goal the, the sort of destruction of the host. Forgetting that is exactly what turns our personal stories into tragedies. So how can we wrap all this up? Well, you see what happens right after Adam and Eve eat the fruit and their eyes are opened. And it says that they knew that they were naked. Well, shame has now made its grand and inglorious entrance into the world. Creates alienation, not just between Adam and Eve, but between Adam and Eve and God. And so the Bible tells that they go out and they grab fig leaves so they can make coverings for themselves. Um, you know, when I was a child, I remember reading those little uh, children's storybook Bibles that were always at the dentist's office, you know? And the picture of Adam and Eve, you know, with the leaf clothes that they had were, were hilarious. You know, Adam had this lovely little pantsuit on, and, you know, Eve had this lovely little off-the-shoulder leaf number that she had sort of constructed for herself. That's ridiculous. How silly must they have looked trying to stitch to themselves leaf clothes? But the point of those leaf clothes is to say, look, you know that sin has gotten hold of you, When you begin looking for a covering, a covering for your soul, in other words, you begin to, your life becomes a function of an attempt to dress up your outsides. And and I think this is, this is a profound sort of moment of self-examination, is it not? How much of the daily business of my life, how much of my daily internal monologue, how about the, the expenditures of my money week in and week out? How many of my conversations with friends are just results of trying to cover myself? To sort of repair a deep, abiding sense of shame on the inside. Powerful self-examination maybe this afternoon. But here's the good news, and we talked about it last week. That on the cross, Jesus becomes naked so that he could cover our nakedness. But that's not all he did. We didn't get to this last week. But he also came to give us a robe of righteousness. So the Apostle Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5, 2, that we groan longing to be clothed. Longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. What does he mean? It's the end of shame as a primary motivational force of my life. So there you have it. God's view of evil. Um, yeah, I've been doing a little bit of thinking lately about sermons and what purpose they have for church-going people like yourselves. And it occurs to me that a sermon is in many ways kind of a, it's kind of a conceptual recommendation, isn't it? It's a suggestion of a way to view the world around you that makes sense of the world around you in your life. And Genesis 3 gives, I think, a profound understanding of explaining both the evil within, that I'm capable of inside, but also that that comes from out by showing us the person of the devil. But you know, it also occurs to me that there's a possibility that one of the reasons why a sermon doesn't strike me as a helpful way to frame my world is because I'm hurting. And I'm hurting now. 
And the pain is such that I'm, it's not getting through. Present pain can blind a person to getting objective about why they're suffering and why God won't give them some relief from the relentlessness of their own sin. We want more than anything to know why God is doing this. There's a wonderful commentator by the name of J. Stafford Wright who wrote an essay on the book of Ecclesiastes, a book in the Old Testament that talks about this whole struggle with um, uh, the why of life as well. But listen to how he processes this. I think this is fascinating. He said, but what is this driving force that compels our minds to turn again and again to the problems of life? Is it no more than idle curiosity? Or is it part of our inheritance as those made in the image of God so that we see that the universe has wholeness and that it must make sense if only we could find what the sense is? The Christian answer, of course, is that the universe does make sense. There is a plan and there is a purpose that has been had as its center and climax in Jesus. And we as Christians have been predestined to be an integral part of that plan. We have, quote, been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God also prepared that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. Listen to this, though. But not even to Christians has it been given to comprehend the plan. Not even a Christian can explain how everything comes into his life, takes its place in the plan. But nonetheless, all the time that Christian is trying to catch a glimpse of a certain wholeness that will link together all of his individual experiences. And you know what that link is? (laughs) It's the word of God. It's the story of the Bible that comes back and reminds me of the wholeness, even when I feel so blind by my own sense of fear and pain and hurt. Man, there's a lot of wisdom there. But look, for our purpose, I just want to leave you this one thought. The Bible gives us such a unique way of approaching pain in the world and suffering in the world. On the one hand, it doesn't deny that it really exists. Eastern mystic religions will tell you that, oh, it's an illusion pain. But nor does it say that pain is nothing more than punishment. Well, you must have done something wrong. That's moralism. What what the Bible does, though, is say, no, 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 I'm going to take your pain and I'm going to use that very thing to sort of bring about good for you. And I'm going to do it without actually sort of making you feel like it's punishment. I'm going to do it in such a way that keeps you from, it gives you the ability to acknowledge that it's real and that it hurts and that it bothers. So God promises that in some sense, there's a good story that's being told through my pain, not against it, not in spite of it, but through it. We're the only people can think that way. No, God doesn't promise to give me all the answers that I want in this life, but he does promise me a covering. That's what he promises me. And because he covers me, it means that in the end, I can trust him. And because I can trust trust him, I can know that his commands for me are for my good. His commands are for my good, that they're here for my flourishing. So that maybe, maybe the story of the Bible and my story as I see myself in it has a happy ending. Wouldn't that be great? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would draw us into that because who knows where we are. Father, whether, whether things have happened to us outside of any doing of our own or, or whether or not things have happened to us that have been absolutely done at our hands, we can be lost in this moment. But we are grateful for the story of your word because we find that we understand it a little bit better 
we know, yes, yes, our hearts are bent towards destruction, but there's also a voice in our heads, pressing, moving. There's a personality that has our worst interests at heart. So Father, we need your protection more than we could ever imagine. So would you move in us as we sing this morning, as we praise you, as we come to your table to partake of real food from you? Maybe you do that this morning and we would walk out with a different way of looking at the world. And we'd be grateful. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.